We are in the middle of a series called Heaven, Hell, in the End Times, and today, and actually the next three weeks, we're going to be in the book of Revelation. How many of you have ever read the book of Revelation? Just raise them high. How many of you understood the book of Revelation? And there goes that hand right there. My, my hope this morning is that we would have a better handle on what this book is all about, like what's going on here, um, and, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tell you here that um, you're gonna leave here hungry. You're gonna leave here going, wait, I felt like I felt like there could have been more to be said, friends. There is a lot to be said about the book of Revelation. I'm using uh, four different books as I'm studying through this. One of the commentaries I have is 1,200 pages, yo. It's bigger than the Bible, and it's on just one book. And so, uh, But my hope is that we would leave here going, wow, this book is incredible. I should pick it up and read it again myself. And so um, we're going to look at the first half of the book of Revelation this morning, um, and before we jump into the text itself, we're actually going to watch a video. It's, it's actually a pretty lengthy video. It's 10 minutes, but here's what this video is going to do. It's going to summarize the first half of the book of Revelation way faster than I can. And it has like illustrations and drawings. And you're actually going to see some of my drawings. Um, they're nowhere near as impressive as these drawings, though. Um, and so uh, here's what I want you to pay attention to as we watch this video. One, what is the book of Revelation really about? And two, this is huge, two, especially at the end of the video, how is Jesus portrayed in the book of Revelation? What is the word picture for Jesus? And how about this? Why is he given this specific word picture? So what's the word picture of Jesus and, and why? So let's, uh, as, before, we're, as we watch this, our offering is going to come around. If you're a first or second timer, just let that offering card be, just drop in, but um, let's have some fun. Uh, you can say you watched a movie in church today. So, ready, set, go. Nice and loud. The book of Revelation is twofold. The author of this book, which is not called Revelation, by the way, is named after the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught and burned his church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he is written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse is recounting a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that reveal God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says that apocalypse is a prophecy which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn, comfort, and in time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of based on seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven seven into every single part of this book. Now, with this book, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and number. It is not a secret predicted code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his 
John, who can let the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's 11 means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor, which has been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that faced each church. Some were apathetic to wealth and affluence, others were more of a compromise, their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples, but others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely in play. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman enemy. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome, or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of Adam and her. And so this opening section that sets up the main plot position and will drive the storyline of this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is gigantic. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God, who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's vision. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But, it turns out, no one is able to open the scroll. Until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classical Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he and so this vision concludes with the Lamb, alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain Lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide his future conclusions. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal, linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, or could be happening now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns.
the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seven contains the next one. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment, and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals, and John sees four horsemen, which is in the term they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, tragically average things in history. The fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's judgment throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to that cry. He brings the great day of the Lord in Isaiah and Joel, and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with the signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military specific, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering line of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the Lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is broken, the seven warning trumpets emerge, and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs that is cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpets play the plagues sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh did in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and Some people 
one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' follower, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened their heart. But the Lamb, He conquered His enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of His army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who is that terrible beast that wages war of God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half. Did that just blow your mind? Yes? No? The fact that you're not saying anything, maybe, yes. There is a part two to that. Um, oh my goodness. I can be real with you. Um, I, I, I was like so like excited slash nervous for this morning that I didn't even sleep well last night. I was having dreams. This is weird. <laughs> I was having dreams about Revelation. And, uh, and, but I was also really excited to wake up. And I, I woke up like, oh, yes, it's time. It, it's got to be close to... You know, my alarm going off. I look at the clock. One o'clock. I'm like, come on, let's get to the morning here. First time that's happened in a long time. Okay. Deep breath, right? Deep breath. Was that helpful? Um, yes. Uh, some of you uh, may... It, it, um, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, he, here's how this morning is going to play out. Um, it's going to be very teachy heavy. Um, and it's going to be kind of two parts. The first part is... I want us to get an understanding of the four major views of understanding when all of this stuff is going to take place. Um, this video takes, takes a particular stance, it's going to take a particular view, but there's different views. Are we having trouble with this? It's, it's the um, HDMI one. Uh, so there's four different views of when this stuff ta takes place. Uh, and, and when we understand when this stuff takes place, it's a little bit un better to, uh, easier to understand, but, but a lot of people disagree. So we're going to talk about these four different views at a very high level. I'm leaving a ton out. Um, and then uh, we're going to close by trying to answer what I think, this is just my personal view, what I think is the most important question to ask when you um, come into the book of Revelation. Um, and, and then I'm going to end by just doing a little bit of practicality. And I, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to just end with what, what this sermon did to me. Um, I was preaching at myself uh, yesterday. And it was, it, it, this sermon just, 
I'm very excited. I'm, let's pray. Let's, let's, let's pray. Because you're not sharing my excitement. Get excited with me. I'm even excited for the book of Revelation. Amen? Amen. Okay. Oh, Father, my heart is beating a little bit faster than usual. Um, help us to see you, Jesus, and how epically grand you are. You are amazing, Jesus. You are You have saved us from our sin. You have given us new life. You have given us the promise of eternity with you. You have promised that you are with us in the midst of this life that we live right here, right now. Father, we pray for help to understand this incredible message that you gave to John. And I pray that your words would be spoken through me and to our hearts, and uh, we would just leave here um, so much more in love with you, and that we would leave here understanding what this message has to do with us. We pray all these things in your name, amen. So here's my, my version of it. Um, uh, here's a Bible Project's version of it. Uh, it's a little bit smaller on here, that's why I kind of drew it out here, and mine's a little bit different, this is going to help us. Um, in just a moment as I talk about these four different views. You can watch, they've got a video, or sometimes it's two videos, like the book of Revelation, it takes two videos. They have a video in every single book of the Bible. Um, If you uh, desire to be a Bible reader, which everyone, yes, you do, I really encourage going on your phone and downloading, it's an app called Read Scripture, and it's incredible. It leads you through um, the whole entire Bible. You can read it at whatever pace you want, but it has these videos along the way. So before you read the book of Genesis or before you read the book of Leviticus, oh yeah, anybody? Leviticus, some of you are like, I've never even tried to get through it. Um, it. It has a video and you'll watch the video and you'll be like, oh my goodness, the Bible's really not that difficult to understand. So I encourage you to get that. So, um, you, and you can even download this Bible Project poster here. So um, I, I'm not going to dive into this too much, but here is kind of my version of um, uh, pointing out the flow of the book of Revelation. So chapter 1, you have this introduction. We see um, John, most likely the Apostle John. Chapters 2 through 3, you have the seven churches. Um, 4 and 5, we've got the, the throne room of God. It is this incredible picture. Chapter 5 is the, the scroll is revealed, and no one can open it except Jesus. And, and then we go into, from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 16, we have what are three sets of, get this, just read this together with me, three sets of seven what? Divine judgments. Divine judgments. It's really important for us to understand and for us to see here, is that God is doing something here, and he's doing um, two things, at least two things. The first thing he's doing is he's bringing his justice. He's bringing his justice. And, and I get it. Sometimes we get problems when God brings justice. But friends, think about the world that we live in. Think about getting on the news feed and seeing what's happening in Syria, seeing what's happening in, in all these different parts of the country. It's like God's, God needs to bring his justice. He needs to bring his justice. And so it's a picture of God bringing his justice. But as you heard in this video, you see at the end of chapter 9, you see in the middle kind of end chapter 11, that God is doing this to, in hope, bring people to repentance. That people would turn.
turn to God and, and give themselves to God. And so we see chapter 6 through 16, these three sets of divine judgments. You have these kind of intermissions um, in the midst of the seals and the trumpets where you have the Lamb's army. You have the scroll explained uh, 8 through 11, kind of at the end there. Um, I believe it's like 10 through 11, the scroll explains chapter 12 through 14, the seven signs. This is really important. Different views will say different things. I can't help but um, think that the seven signs, it talks about these two different beasts, it talks about the dragon, we're introduced to Satan, that chapter 12 and 14 is talking about what's going on behind all of these sets of judgments. That what we're seeing here is wars and famines and persecutions of Christians. We're seeing all of these things that you and I can see and point to. In chapter 12 and 14, the seven signs, Jesus is saying, hey, I want to let you know that there's something going on underneath this. This isn't just about people making war against one another. As Ephesians tells us, this war that we are in is not just against flesh and blood, that, that there is someone called Satan, really. There is demonic powers at work. And chapter 12 and 14 is telling us, okay, there's a war going on that we can't necessarily see. And then 15 through 16, we have these seven bowls. And then jumping to 17 through um, the first half of 19, you have this picture of the fall of Babylon. Is it really Babylon? Is it representing, a, you know, like Rome or another nation? What is Babylon? Who is Babylon? The second half of chapter 19, you have the final battle, um, and then in the first half of 20, the heart of chapter, maybe in the whole entire Bible, uh, is this thousand years. It's called the millennium. Is this a thousand years? Is this symbolically a thousand years? Is it um, right now? Are we gonna Are we gonna see it in the future? Are we gonna be there? Are they gonna be there? Who's gonna be there? So many questions, so few answers. And then you have this picture of the final judgment. You have people whose their names are written in the book of life, and then you have others who are not. And that's where we talk about heaven and hell. This is coming next week. And then, uh, you like how I decorated the new heavens and the new earth? I was pretty excited about that. Um, clearly, you are too. So you, that, that's the flow. That's the flow. So here's, here's what we're going to do. The first part. I'm going to do this very quickly. About two minutes per um, view here. More like two and a half for some of the later ones. So there are four different views, four primary, you could say four and a half primary views of interpreting when, right here, when Revelation 5 through 20 take place. Or for some of these, some of these views, it's 5 through 19. When is this stuff going to take place? Or has it already taken place? And so here we go. There's four predominant views. I'm staying at the surface here. And, uh, and, and then you can do further reading. And there's even views within these views. So here we go. First view. It's called the preterist view. Um, this is a Latin word. Preteritum is the Latin word. And it literally means the things that is past. And so the preterist view says chapters, frankly, chapters 1 all the way through 19, it's already happened. It's done. And specifically... Chapters 6 through 11, right here, this is speaking about the fall of Jerusalem or and, and the fall of the temple that takes place in, in 70 AD. That's an actual event. So here's what you need to know about the preterist view. The preterist would 
to suggest that this book was written before AD 70. It had to, because they say these events happened in AD 70. They believe that the latter part of the events, 12 through 19, um, the fall of Babylon, they would say Babylon is Rome. And so the Preterist view says that's speaking about Rome falling in the fourth century. Um, I mentioned the time of authorship and the date of authorship because most theologians um, point the book of Revelation in AD 70. So here's our next view. Historic. So think of the word history. These names are very helpful, I think. Um, think history. So the historic view um, says that these events are actual sequential events that are going to take place, like, like the um, preterist view. These are actual events that are going to take place. They're going to happen in sequential order. So the seven seals begin first, and then you have the seven trumpets, seven bowls, and, and so on. And these began to happen not long after this book was written. If you read verse 1 of Revelation, chapter 1, it says, these are the things that will soon take place. And both of the preterists and the historic view say, hey, these things began to happen AD 90 or so, or the preterist view, AD 70. The historic view says this, though. The historic view says, but we're not here yet. We're not to, we're not to chapter 19, chapter 20. We're in the midst of this, and we're yet to see some of these actual historic events happen. So we're, you know, we're, we're somewhere around here. The ideal, idealism. I don't know why it's called idealism. I like to joke, and it actually might be real. Whoever named this view are like, this is the most ideal view. Maybe that is the case. So idealism um, says that these, all of these judgments, all of these pictures that we see, they're symbols. And they are symbolic of what we are going to see on this earth. What's important is that they would say that um, there's a word that you can, look, that you can use this at the party you're at this week or maybe you're having family dinner tonight. You can word, use the word recapitulation. Let's say it together. You just got smarter, friends. How about that? Recapitulation says that these things are just happening over and over again. For example, you have some of these seals representing war, representing famine. Has there been more than one war in the past two, two, two millenniums? Yes? There's multiple wars going on. And so um, the idealist view says this is all symbolic. This is symbolically talking about the conflict. Get this. This is symbolically talking about the conflict that's going on between Christ and the church against Satan and his vessels. And all of these pictures that we're seeing here, they are symbolic. They're drawing from all of this Old Testament language over and over again. And it's symbolically talking about the world we're going to continue to live in until we get to the new heavens and the new earth. This is all symbolic. It's just the wars are keeping a coming and the famines are coming and Christians are continually suffering. That, that's the idealist view. Very symbolic. So you have the, the futurist view. Again, very helpful. Future. When is the future? It's in the future. So here's what the futurist view says. The futurist view 
says that chapters 5 or maybe chapter 6, chapter 6, all the way, well, really till the end, um, these things have not happened yet. None of them have happened yet. They're actual events that will happen. Um, futurists take the book of Revelation very literal. And so when they read all, you know, these seven seals, these seven trumpets, um, these seven bowls, they, they, like, this is like very real stuff. So here's an example. Um, it talks about in Revelation about the number 777. It's going to be written, or not 777. Just making sure you're paying attention, guys. Um, 666, it's going to be written on their hand. It's going to be written on their head. And they would say, well, you know what? I read this article recently. It's only a matter of time before we have chips put into, like, our dogs and our cats. They, like, put chips in them. They can track them. It's only a matter of time before we, you know, put chips in the hand and chips on the forehead. And we can only go about and do business if, if we have those. That, that, is, that is the mark of the beast, 666. So the futurists would take that. They would take all of these pictures that we see in Revelation, and they would try to apply them as literal as, as possible. They also believe that chapters 6 through 19 are going to happen in a seven-year period. Seven years, beginning to end. And then Jesus is going to come back, the second coming, um, and then he, Jesus is going to rule on earth for a thousand years, and then there's the um, final judgment, new heavens, new earth. Okay. Um, then there's the dispensational view. Uh, the word dispensation literally means like a, a season of time. Whether it's a short time or a long time, a dispensation is a season of time. So, um, for example, when we talk about American history, we often talk about it in term. We refer to different times and different periods very often in, in terms of the dispensation a president served. How long was the dispensation for Obama? How many years? Eight, eight years. Did someone not say eight? Um, th uh, and then you had the Clinton, we would call it maybe the Clinton era, or we call it the Clinton administration, or you'd call it the Clinton dispensation. So disp dispensationalists um, say, okay, the Old Testament is this old dispensation, an old season of time in which God worked in specific ways. And then the New Testament, Jesus comes, it's this new dispensation, and we are, we are living in that new dispensation but here's what's going to happen. There's going to actually be a brand new dispensation that takes place. And what's going to happen is right here, before we get to these chapter 6, what's going to happen is, I'm going to give you a big R. You tell me what it is. What does R stand for? Rapture. So the dispensational view says, here's what's going to happen. If you really read closely at 1 Thessalonians 4, if you really read closely um, at Matthew 24, you'll see that what's going to happen is Jesus is, it's not going to be his second coming. It's, it's going to be like a half of a coming. And, and he's going to kind of come and he's going to rapture. Um, that's a Latin term. He's going to rapture. He's going to take his church. I think it's worth noting the word rapture. You can't find it in the Bible. Sorry. Um, but he's going to come and take his church. And, and he's going to pull them up. All of the Christians are gone. And what's going to happen is it's going to be a bunch of unbelievers. And they're going to go through seven years of tribulation. And hopefully some of them will get saved. Um, and so that's, that's the dispensational view. Uh, which has been made very popular in the past two centuries. 
Um, the idea of the rapture really didn't come around until about 200 years ago in the 1800s. And then it got made really, really popular, not really by a theologian, but by this movie called The Thief in the Night. Did anyone see it? 1970-something. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. I feel really proud that I saw that. And yes, awesome. You young people need to grow up. Seriously. Uh, I remember watching that in, in seventh grade, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like... I'm so scared. Um, go watch it. Oh, man. Maybe not. Or, uh, how many of you read the novels Left Behind? Anyone? Yes? How many of you saw the movies Left Behind? Kurt Cameron, Nicolas Cage came out with a version of it. And so, um, dispensationalism is actually has become very, very popular, namely because of pop culture. So, there, there, those are four views, or kind of four and a half. So, let me ask you this. Um... What view do you take? What view do you take? That, that was a rhetorical question. That'd be weird. If, don't, don't say it out loud. That just caused problems. And I asked that question, but I asked, actually, I think what is a more important question. If you do have a view, why do you have it? Why do you have that view? You can be like me, and you have a very particular view because... You were only taught one view. In fact, you weren't really taught it. It was just kind of like said, and you're like, oh, okay, that, all right. And then it was reinforced because you picked up a novel. And then you're like, oh, maybe I should read the book of Revelation sometime. <laughs> so maybe you have the view because of that. Or maybe you have the view because someone told you this view. Maybe you have this view because you've carefully studied the book of Revelation. But, but why do you have the view that you have? I think that's a very important question for us to ask. Here's the other thing I would say is behind each of these four views, um, you will find many, many, many great, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered theologians. And, and so it's not as if if you just believe the right things about Jesus, you'll get the right view. Um, there are people, I pastors, theologians, I respect so greatly that um, have a different view than, than I would take. By the way, I just came up with a view like two weeks ago. Um, I chose not to have one until I really like dug into it and uh, my mind has been blown by just really, oh man, it's been so good. Uh, and, uh, and that view might more or less come out. Um, it will, but here's the deal. I think that whatever view you have, you need to hold it with a very open hand. I hold my view with a very open hand. I think that all four of these views has, well, I, 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 I think that all four of these views are very legitimate. I have problems with part of one, and you can, uh, it's maybe coming out. Um, but I think we need to hold it with an open hand. And, and, and if we have conversations with people who have different views, I think our conversations should be less of, you know, like punching and getting, you know, getting it to one another, and should rather be opening up our Bible and going, okay, let's just understand this together. Um, so here, there are the four views. Hold them with an open hand. Um, here's where I want us to conclude and spend the rest of our time. I think the most important question that we need to ask is what is the purpose of the book of Revelation? What's the purpose? This is not a book that has just fallen out of heaven. It is a book that was written at a particular time. It was written to a particular group of people. 
And I think when we look closely at um, who wrote this book and, and who it's written to, we can better understand what is the purpose of the book of Revelation. Um, and I think it helps us understanding these different four views, maybe, maybe helps us lean in one direction over the other, at least it does for me. Um, but what is the purpose? So here we go. I have to fly. Revelation 1, 9 through 11, I think, helps us get a glimpse of the purpose of, of the book of Revelation. And so let's read it. I, John, so John is our writer, probably the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. So he's on this island called Patmos. Why is he on this island? On the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been exiled there. It's very important for us to see. John is in like a quasi-prison of sorts. I, I think it's too far to call this like Alcatraz of sorts, but he's been exiled to an island because he's a follower of Jesus. Let's keep reading. I was in the Spirit, and in other words, he's saying like, okay, the, the Holy Spirit just began to pour out this, this vision, this revelation to me on the Lord's Day, that, that would have been Sunday, and I heard behind me, now just, this, is, this is just helpful as you read through the book of Revelation, John is going to hear things, and then he's going to see things, and what he hears and what he sees are, they're, they're, they're supposed to be the same thing, but what he hears and what he sees is a bit different. And so I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, okay, I want you to write something, John. Write what you see in a book and send it. I want you to send it to the seven churches. And he tells us, here are the churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to the to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So, John is our author. He's in the midst of tribulation, persecution, suffering, for the sake of the gospel. And he has this revelation, and, and he is told, I want you to get out. Okay, how many of you have ever done this? You pulled out a piece of paper, and you pulled out a pen, and you wrote, Dear Mom. Have you ever written a letter to your mom? Or dear, you know, or maybe you're at camp, dear mom, or maybe, maybe this is before text messaging and you like wrote a letter to your, to your sixth grade girlfriend or boyfriend, I don't know, um, and, 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 you, and you wrote dear, you know, mom, and then, and then you would write the contents of whatever you're trying to write to them. You fold up this, this piece of paper, you put it in an envelope, and you put a stamp on it. What, what have you just written? Um, how do you get the letter to that person? Mail, you, you typically got to write something on the front of it, right? An address. So you address it to them, to mom, you know, Bellevue, wherever, and you send it in the mail, and they open it up, and it says, Dear Mom. Now, if I've written a letter to my mom, the contents of that letter, is it going to be relative to my mom and the situation my mom is in, or am I going to write to her, um, I'm going to write things that I think are going to happen in 2,000 years. And they have nothing to do with her, but I suppose I should just write it to her. Are you tracking? We have to understand 
that this letter was written to a very particular group of people in a very particular situation. He does not say, hey, I'm going to write to the, you know, John, I want you to write to these seven churches about what's going to happen that they're going to have nothing to do with. What's going to happen, you know, 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 years from now? Hey, write to them about that stuff. No, no, no. He says, okay, I want you to write this letter, and I want you to write to a very particular group of people in a very particular set of circumstances. Now, does this mean that just because we are not the audience, we cannot glean from this? This is profoundly helpful for us. It's like reading the book of Galatians. It was not written to you. It was written to the church in Galatia. But it tells us a lot about what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. But to fully understand the letter to the Galatians, we have to understand it was not written to us. It was written to a very particular situation, to a very particular group of people. Namely, the Galatians who didn't really know what the gospel was. Or at least were being taught a different gospel. So here you go. Two... The seven churches. I, I, have, I have a message for you. And so let's go back. This is very important. Verse 9. John makes a statement. I, John, your, your brother and, and partner or participator in, in what? In the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. These three words tell us a lot about the purpose of the book. He says, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation. He tells them, I'm, I'm, I'm exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos. We need to understand that this, this, these churches, at least six out of the seven, were undergoing pretty severe persecution, pretty severe tribulation for following Jesus. A kind of persecution I'm not sure we can fully understand. Some of them are getting killed because they're following Jesus. And one of the commentaries I read, I found this very helpful as he said this. This is a literature, kind of literature, that is written by a persecuted Christian to persecuted Christians. And so here he writes to them, they're being persecuted. But notice this, this is huge. And he says, you are my partner in the tribulation and, and the kingdom. What is he speaking of? What did we talk about last week? The kingdom of heaven. Um, I'm spelling that wrong, don't worry. Of heaven. And you can't even read my writing anyways. The kingdom of heaven is a picture of God's sovereign rule over earth. It is a picture that even right now and back then too, God is in absolute sovereign control of everything. And I'm not sure if we see this, but if we look closely... There's a bit of a paradox going on. And here's the paradox. God is in absolute control, and we are a part of his kingdom. We are on team God, the God who's in control, the God who loves us, the God who cares for us. But wait a second. We're suffering way more than everyone else. We're being persecuted way more than everyone else. In that day, the pagan systems where we're tied very closely to, to the um, economic systems. And, and so to separate yourself from the pagan systems was, was in many ways to separate yourself from the economic system. And so a lot of Christians were very poor in that day. And so here's the paradox here. We are part of God's kingdom. God is in absolute full control of this whole entire world. But wait a second. We're on his team and it seems, seems like we're losing in their way. 
And one of the questions that very certainly these seven churches, or at least six out of the seven, were asking was this. Is God really in control? Like, I, I, I get the tribulation part because that's real and I've got bruises to prove it. But this kingdom part, is God really in control? How many of you have ever been in a season of life where the tribulation was so heavy, was so difficult, so harsh, that as a Christian, you really did have that question, God, are you really in control? Because they have cancer, and they are very righteous, and those people are really healthy living in big houses, and it seems like things are going way better for them, and they have no idea who Jesus is. Like, God, are you really in control? You ever, you ever thought that? It's a question they're certainly asking. God, are you really in control? And, and John says, I'm, I'm, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation, in, in this kingdom, and in the patient endurance, this word is um, it's literally perseverance. And I think we can put a question mark here. And here's the reason why I think we can put a question mark here. Because this is the hope. John is about ready to transition into chapter 2 and 3 where he's going to talk about the seven churches. Five out of the seven have people in their church that are not enduring. They have the choice between being faithful to Christ or compromising. And five out of the seven churches are compromising. Five out of the seven churches are going, you know what, it, it, it kind of does seem like God is really not in control. You know what, we should just, we should just do what they're doing. In the first church, the church in Ephesus, it, it says that they've got this head knowledge of the gospel, but they don't love Jesus. Their love is for other things. Two of the churches um, says that they're giving in to temptation, sexual immorality specifically. You know, nowadays that would be pornography. It's not relevant at all for us, right? It'd be pornography, it'd be adultery. And two of the churches are, are leaning in that direction and they're compromising. They are, they are not enduring. They're going, it sure seems like God's really not in control, so, well, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just go the way everyone else is going. Another church, they're just not doing good deeds. They're, Christ has called them to good works, Ephesians 2, 10, and they're just not. Just living like everyone else. Their life looks nothing, their life looks exactly the same as everyone else around them. The last church, I'll let you read it for yourself, is, it is the picture, in my opinion, my opinion, my opinion, it is, it, is, it is the picture of American Christianity. They're the, they're the only church that seems to not really be, per, be being persecuted. But it says they're lukewarm, and it's very unique. You know why they're lukewarm? Their wealth did it to them. Their wealth did it to them. Their wealth just said, well, you know what? I like money. And Jesus is good too. So I'll just, I'll just serve both. <laughs> and so this is the context in which John is writing to. And if you read what Jesus says, because Jesus has a word for each of the seven churches, to the five that are not walking with him, he says, says the same thing. Repent. You have a choice between compromising and you have a choice of being faithful. 
and you're compromising. I want you to repent. And I'll let you read it yourself, because you might ask, well, what happens if they don't repent? It's not good, friends. It's not. It's not good at all. But here's what's epically grand. To all seven churches, he says the same exact thing at the end. And he says this. To those that conquer. I know you're suffering. I know that you're in the tribulation. I know that you had a choice between compromise and faithfulness. It's so, so easy to compromise and live like everyone else is living. I get that you're asking the question, God, are you really in control? Because things are going really rough for me and I'm following you and things are going really easy for them and they're not following you. And Jesus says, if you stay faithful, you will conquer. You will conquer if you stay faithful. And I, okay. So the question I think we ask that leads us to the purpose of the book is how do we conquer? This blew me up yesterday. I'm just going to read it. Maybe there's a verse that will show up. I didn't. I'm going to start reading chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven, get this, get this, this is the cosmic, no one in heaven, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No one in heaven. And I, John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. What has he done? He has conquered. It's over. It's finished. Jesus has conquered. Before we even get to chapter 1, we need to understand, before we get to these three sets of divine judgments, before we even get there, we need to understand, war's fought, war's over, we win. Game over. Put me in, coach, because I, I, I like winning, and it's already finished. I know you're suffering. I know you're going through trials. I know that you're exhausted. I know there's temptation. I know that you want to compromise. Game's over. Just keep wearing the jersey and keep fighting because we win. We win. Blew me up. I'm sure you can't tell. And so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders... I saw, remember what he heard, lion, tribe of Judah, root of, of, of David. This is Jesus. But what does he see? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then jumping to verse 9, it says, and they, and they sang a new song. The heavens are singing this song saying, 
Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, not just white people, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign, they shall reign, they shall reign. You have made them a kingdom. Who's them? Hello, that's you, that's me, those who know Jesus. You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And so if you, stay faithful to Jesus you will conquer you will conquer you may die of cancer but you will conquer you may lose everything you will still conquer the purpose of the book I had to write this down because it was just so grand to me the purpose of the book of Revelation it is to comfort the struggling and suffering church against the forces of evil in the world that seem to be winning. They're suffering, there's tribulation, they're exhausted. And it is to remind them, it is to comfort them that in the midst of the forces of evil, the purpose is to show us that Jesus has already conquered by his death and resurrection. And as a result, we will also conquer. But we must, listen friends, as you read chapter 2 and 3 this week, we must repent of any compromises we have made and remain faithful to Jesus our Savior. And by this, we will conquer. But you will suffer. And I'll end, and I just went way over. The problem I have with, with the rapture, and the, the reason why I say this is because it's such a popular view. The reason why I, have, I take issue with the rapture is because the sixth seal here is all of these Christians suffering. And they're dying. And that's actually what's happening here too, to the seven churches. And Jesus does not say to the seven churches, hey, you know what? Hang tight just a little bit longer because here's the deal. After we're done with chapter five, you're out of here. <gasps> you're out of here. You don't even have to worry about conquering because I'm just going to take you out and leave the world to this. I have an issue with that because I can't help but Say, Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, you are suffering. I know you're suffering. And it's going to continue to get more difficult. He actually says that to these churches. But you are part of the Lamb's army. And you will conquer. You will. You will. So here's what it did to me. Application. 
This is my personal application. You do with it what you want. I wrote this. We don't suffer. I don't. I don't suffer like these seven churches. But know what I've realized is if I look around, others around me do. Others around me suffer. Sometimes they're a four-year-old that needs a home. Sometimes it's people who've lost a loved one to cancer. Sometimes it's they fly to a different country and they have nothing. But others around me do. And so this is what this did to me. My application, I need to be like Jesus. I need to be like the lamb that laid down his life and compassionately lay my life down for those who are suffering around me. And I just wrote this. These seven churches, John is trying to get their eyes on the new heavens and the new earth. He doesn't promise them any kind of ease in life here. He says, this is a warm-up. This is a dress-up. This is a, a dress rehearsal. And then you're going to spend eternity here. I, 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 and, and, I, and I think that, that we live as if everything is here. My joy, my life, my, my hope, it's here. And I think, I think that's one of the reasons why we have a hard time with the book of Revelation. I think if you go to suffering places of the world, they would go, yeah, I can see this stuff all around me. And I'm, I'm, I'm never going to cross the finish line here. But I got this. I got the new heavens and I got the new earth. And so I just simply wrote this, that, that we would live like heaven is our treasure in Jesus and not this earth. That we would not find our treasure, our comfort here, but we would find our treasure and comfort in the promises of the new heavens and the new earth. Let this sit with you. Let's pray. Father, as we close in prayer, help us see you, help us worship you, and help us follow you with all of our hearts. Give us eyes to see that our hope is in you. And our joy is in you. In your name, amen.